The time has come, the walrus said, to speak of many things, of ships and shoes and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, of why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. It's not mine, it's Lewis Carroll's. Alice through the looking glass. But the time indeed has come for my final sermon as your senior pastor. Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me strength. You know, we've been in this sermon series talking about my favorite gospel, the gospel of John, and so many of the elements of John tie in and are integrated again and again, and you hear them in different ways and at different times. And today, it's almost like chapter 2 of a sermon I preached just two weeks ago when I was talking about catching the fish and the, and the breakfast and the forgiveness the last week when I talked about again and again and again, all these things tie in together as they demonstrate to us the very essence of what it means to be Christ-like in who we are and in what we do, what it means to live the Christian life. We've talked about things about, like extravagance when we talked about giving up those things that we hold so valuable, that we think are of so much worth, and giving them over and surrendering to Christ that we may surrender our lives to him and be the type of servants he wants us to be. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that no matter what we do, no matter how horrific our actions are, he is always inviting us. He's saying, come, have breakfast with me, eat with me. And at the same time, like I said last week, he is forgiving us of our trespasses again and again and again, and expecting us to do the same in each other. That just as many times as we are forgiven, we will forgive another. And heaven knows we all need forgiveness in the midst of our brokenness. And today we tie it all together in one final sermon as we go to the end of John into a passage that I truly, truly love that sticks with me again and again and again. So let us go to the end of the Gospel of John. We will go to the 21st chapter. We will go to the 15th verse as a follow-on to a sermon that we did just a couple of weeks ago. These are those remaining verses. As John the Beloved writes these things about the interaction between Jesus and Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. A reporter was visiting an insane asylum, a mental institution. He was doing a report on the institution, and he asked the director what determined whether or not a patient should be institutionalized. And the director said, well, it's really rather simple. What we do is we fill up a bathtub, and then we offer the person a teaspoon, a teacup, and a bucket. And then we ask them to empty the bathtub. Ah, I understand, said the reporter. A normal person, of course, would use the bucket because it's bigger than a teaspoon or a teacup. No, said the director. A normal person would pull the drain plug. Would you like a bed by the window? The Apostle Peter was not a normal person. He was not, had not been normal since Jesus Christ had entered his life. But Peter certainly didn't need to be institutionalized because God had big plans for him. There was much to be expected out of Peter. But in order to fulfill those plans, Peter had to get some things straight. And one of those things was the heart-rendering, heavy burden of his denial of Jesus Christ. Peter was most certainly devastated, shattered, defeated, probably even broken-hearted, as any of us would be. And as Peter returns to Galilee with his friends, several days had passed and nothing had happened. They were waiting on a direction from God, but nothing seemed to be happening. And finally, in typical Peter fashion, he said, okay, I'm done waiting. I'm impatient with all this. I can't take it anymore. I'm going fishing. So he goes back to what he knows the best, what he truly feels comfortable with, back to that old secure life, the old life of being a fisherman. And, of course, the others go along with him. And as you well know in the story that I've told you, they fish all night long with absolutely no luck. And as dawn breaks, they see a figure standing on the shore. They, they can't recognize him at this point. But the figure, of course, calls out to them, as I've told you. Say, have you caught anything? No, we haven't caught anything. And the figure says, well, put your nets down on the right side of the boat. And lo and behold, they hit a huge catch of fish. We're told it's 153 fish. And that's when John turns to Peter, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, and says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Peter puts on his tunic and jumps in the water, trying to get to the beach as quickly as possible. The others, of course, come in the boat, dragging the net that's filled with fish but not broken. And here they find Christ cooking breakfast on the shores of Galilee. And then he serves them breakfast, and then he takes Peter aside and asks him these questions. Simon, do you love me? Simon responds, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. The risen Lord says, feed my sheep. Three times. And finally, the passage ends the same way it started three years prior. When Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, follow me. 
follow me. It's a wonderful story. It's filled with powerful symbols and strong emotions. It's filled with dramatic lessons that we can all learn about our Christian lives. There's a wonderful human quality to this story that I want us to briefly think about. First of all, I want to ask you, what do you see in this story physically? What do you see physically going on in these verses? Well, one thing, of course, is we've talked about the charcoal fire. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Here's Jesus on the beach cooking breakfast over a charcoal fire, and you only find that passage one other place, the use of charcoal fire, and that is in the courtyard of Caiaphas, which incidentally is, of course, where Peter ended up denying Christ three times. The soldiers, of course, had seen Peter there in the shadows trying to warm himself. They recognized him. Aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And he said, no. They asked him three times, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? Haven't we seen you before? And Peter says, no, three times. Certainly, certainly, that charcoal fire brought back memories to Peter, the dreadful memory of his denial. And what I want to leave you with today is how many times do we deny Christ How many times do we say we believe, we follow you, and yet when the rubber hits the road, either through our actions or through our words, we deny him? Peter is not the only one that's ever denied the Christ. It still goes on, and it's a physical lesson for each of us. Another physical point in this story is the fact about the 153 fish. You know, sometimes theologians and academics, they get caught up in all of this stuff. 153 fish. There's got to be some significance in that. We just have to interpret it the right way, right? What in heaven's name were 153 fish for? Have you ever wondered about that? I can assure you that others certainly have, trying to find meaning meaning in the 153 fish. Augustine's theory, and he was a father in the 5th century, his was a little complicated. He said there are 10 commandments and 7 is the perfect number of grace. So you add 10 plus 7, that equals 17. Now if you add the numbers from 1 to 17, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, all the way to 17, how much do you think that equals? 153. 153. But Augustine didn't end there. He said if you arrange those fish in rows, and you put 17 at the bottom, and then 16, and then 15, and then 14, all the way up, all those fish, 153 fish, will form a perfect triangle, which represents the Trinity, which incidentally today is Trinity Sunday, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jerome, also of the 5th century, suggested there were 153 different types of fish in the sea, symbolic of the church reaching out to all sorts of people around the world. That that, in the known world, there were only 153 types of fish. But it was symbolic of the church reaching everybody. Now, I don't know about Augustine, and I don't know about Jerome, but I'm going to give you my quick theory, okay? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. 
But if you were a fisherman and went out and all of a sudden you had caught 153 fish and the net was barely able to hold them and it didn't break and you hauled them into the beach and got them on dry land, what's the very first thing you would do when you got those fish on dry land? You would count how many fish you got. That's exactly what you would do. You would want everybody to know what a great fisherman you were. How many fish did you get? When I used to go fishing with my dad and my father-in-law, that's exactly what we do. We'd dump them up on the sidewalk and count how many fish we got. That showed everybody how great we were. 153 fish. I don't know whether my theory is right or wrong, but what I want to leave you with is be careful about what you add or subtract from the gospel. Be careful of what you try to interpret in the gospel. Sometimes 153 fish, that's what it is. 153 fish. Don't read something into it because you want to interpret it in a specific certain way. God's word is God's word. It's perfect and complete as it is. And sometimes we don't have to add anything to it, including our own interpretation. So that's the second thing. The other thing we have is breakfast. Here we find Jesus Christ on the shores of Galilee fixing breakfast. He's fixing fish. Fish. You ever had fish for breakfast? Anybody? Yeah, it's good, especially when there's nothing else to eat. It's fantastic when there's nothing else to eat. You know, scrambled eggs, bacon, sausage, and then fish. But, I mean, you know, fish, that's good. And he was cooking breakfast. And I think that underscores the fact of the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection is not a vision. It's not a dream. It's not some type of hallucination. It's not some type of hoax. It's not an excited imagination of somebody or some plot or ploy that somebody came up with. Phantoms and ghosts don't cook breakfast and eat fish. The risen Lord, Jesus Christ, had defeated death. And he's out there on the seashore cooking breakfast and eating it with his friends. It is the reality, the physical reality of the resurrection. That's why the detail is there. It's Jesus' earthly body eating And we see that as a physical reality. So, that's the first question. The second question is, what do you see in this story emotionally? What are the emotions that you bring forth in this story? This is a poignant story. It's charged with fear and guilt, probably some remorse, certainly some excitement. Peter is there facing all of those things, and I wonder what's racing through his head. I wonder if he's thinking about his own denial, his three denials. Here he is sitting down with breakfast with Jesus Christ, wondering in the back of his mind, am I worthy? Should I be here at all? Do you remember the last meal they had shared together, the Passover meal? Do you remember Peter saying not long before that, Lord, I will never betray you? In fact, I will lay down my life for you. And yet he denied the Christ three separate times. I wonder if Peter is not there that morning eating breakfast with Jesus, wondering about the crucial decision that faces him. What's it going to be? Will I serve Christ or will I forget him? Will I take up the torch of his ministry? Or will I just go on my way? I have painfully, painfully denied the Christ. I have failed him before. Will I fail him again? 
Peter probably say, I wimped out. I wimped out three times. Three times, count them. If I did it three times, will I do it again? Peter perhaps is saying, maybe I'm a coward. Maybe I'm simply a coward at heart. Maybe I should just go back to my old, secure, comfortable life of fishing. How can Jesus ever forgive me? How can Jesus ever truly trust me again? I bragged and I boasted about my strength and my commitment to Christ, but when the rubber met the road, I failed him. I denied him. I let him down. I wonder if Peter didn't swim quickly to the shore that day, trying to say, I'm so sorry, Lord. I failed you, Lord. I want to be the first to shore. I want to be the first in your presence to know how bad I feel. I'm sorry that I failed you. Jesus most certainly knew what was in Peter's mind and what was in his heart. Just like he knew about Thomas. Remember Thomas? When Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hands in the nail-scarred hands and the side. And Jesus gives him exactly the opportunity to do that so that Thomas touches the hands touches the nail-scarred side, and he believes. And now Jesus is doing the same thing for Peter. He's giving Peter what he needs to emotionally heal his wounds. He takes him aside, Simon, do you love me? Peter answers, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. He goes through that ritual three times. Three times. Why? I think quite simply, it's to let Peter's threefold denial be wiped out by his threefold affirmation of love. To let the three times of denial drift into the past and let the three times of affirmation of love be what moves him on. Jesus Christ is saying, I believe in you, Peter. I believe in you. You are still my rock. You can do it. Now put your failure behind you. Put it in the past. You are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Start over again. Start over again. Isn't that what the risen Christ does to each of us? Doesn't he know about all of our failures and all of our fears? And yet he still loves us. He still believes in us, and he wants to say, you are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Now get busy. Go feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. So we see physically the reality of the resurrection, and emotionally we see God's magnificent ability to forgive us again and again and again and again. Which leads us to the third and the final point. What is it that you see spiritually in this story? What is it in this story that you learn about the essence of the Christian faith? We learn about the resurrection. We learn about forgiveness. But my brothers and sisters, I don't want you to miss, this is a love story. This is a love story. This is about God's love for us, His gracious, sacrificial love as expressed so magnificently 
in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. Christ is saying to Simon, if you love me, feed my sheep. And the point is, that's the best way to show Christ that we love him, to be about feeding his sheep. You know, as a pastor, as your pastor, I have earnestly and diligently continued to try to love all the sheep all the time. You know, I told you last week, sometimes you'd like to make lamb chops. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to love. It's the thing I've preached and taught to you again and again and again and again and yet again I do today. It's the essence of who we are and what the church needs to be about, and that's love. Even sometimes when the sheep are unbearable, I come back to this story, and I continue to love each and every one of them. That's what Christ has me to do. That's what you, as my brothers and sisters, hold me accountable for as your pastor. You see, God is not interested in burnt offerings. He's not interested in long, flowery, verbose prayers. He's not interested in in pious expressions of faith. He's not interested in any of those things. He just wants our love. Love is the authentic sign of discipleship. Love is the essence of what we always need to be about. Love is the real symbol of Jesus Christ. He wants us to follow Him and to imitate His ways of love all the time. He wants us to understand that love is the most powerful thing in the entire world. Let me say that again. Love is the most powerful thing in the entire world. He wants us to know that in the end, love makes all the difference. A husband and wife had quarreled for many, many years. They had gotten each on each other's nerves again and again, usually over trivial things, as most married couples will do. But one day they were at it again in some type of disagreement. And suddenly the husband jumps up from the table and he says, go grab two pieces of paper. Go grab a couple of pencils. Let's make a list of everything we don't like about each other. And the wife dutifully goes and gets the paper and the pencils. And she starts writing. And the husband scours at her. He looks at her. Then he starts writing. And she pauses for a moment and then thinks and writes. He looks again and he writes again. This goes on for four or five minutes. And he watches. Every time she writes, he pauses. And then he writes something else. And finally they finish and the husband says, let's exchange our complaints Give me your list and I'll give you mine. After a moment of silence in reading each other's complaint list, the husband quietly and tearfully says, Give me my list back. Give me my list back. Because on the page, in a single column, the wife had written all the way down, I love you. 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 Christ reminds us to let go of yesterday and to start thinking about tomorrow. 
to get busy feeding his sheep, to love one another, and to share the gospel with everyone we come into contact with. Centenary United Methodist Church stands on the cusp of a new day. You are ready to continue down the path that has been opened up before you. This morning I had the opportunity to have both Quentin and Mike at the 901, recognizing both what Quentin has done, what Mike has done, and hopefully what I've been able to accomplish in a very short period of time. And now you have a new pastor in this family. And now you continue forward to fulfill the potential, the hope that God has for this wonderful church and this beautiful community. You see on the cross, on the cross, Jesus is telling each of us, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's what Jesus is telling Peter that morning on the shores of Galilee. He's saying, Peter, I love you. I love you. I love you. And that's what I want you to remember in this, my final sermon to you, as Laurie and I take our leave of you this day. We love you. We love you. We love you. You always remain in our thoughts and in our prayers. Godspeed. Now, now, get out there and feed his sheep. Would you bow your heads with me, please?